When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Han Yu about her new book, The Curious Human Knee, published by Columbia University Press this month, June 2023. Han Yu is a professor in the Department of English at Kansas State University, where she teaches scientific and technical communication. Her other recent book is Mind Thief, The Story of Alzheimer's, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2021. And Han, welcome to the show. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And speaking as one knee pain injury story to another, I feel we can also connect on a physiological level. But um, there's so much more I want to hear you talk about. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background? Sure. Um, so like you mentioned, I am a professor uh, at the, uh, in the English department at Kansas State University. Um, my background is technical communication. That's the discipline I'm trained in, which um, in the U.S. at least um, covers the uh, broad area of technical and scientific communication. Uh, so I teach in both of those areas. Um, my research, my latest research at least, has focused primarily on scientific communication, uh, especially popular science communication. Hmm. Very interesting. And as a science and technical writer, you've published on a variety of topics. Why now the knee? Um, well, like you hinted just then, um, I have what um, you may say, you know, you may call a bad knees. I had um, a meniscus tear and uh, um, an operation on it um, years back from a, a ski uh accident injury. Um, I was, you know, way over my head in what I was doing. But anyway, so, um, so that's always been there. And kind of because of that, or just because of other factors, I had cartilage loss, um, that's causing some trouble here and there. And on top of that, I seem to easily get um, overuse injury in the knee, uh, when I exercise, exercise and do sports. Um, mainly IT band pain, um, the patella femoral pain syndrome, or people would call the runner's knee. Um, so all in all, it just feels like a weak spot in my body. Like I'm, as I'm getting older, um, I'm also just being more aware that the knee hurts when I do stairs. It's kind of stiff when I've been in the car for, for a while. 
Um, so, so over the years, I've been doing a lot of reading um, about knee health and knee care just for my own benefits. And I just got um, super interested in that. And then the more I kind of learned about it, the more I realized it is not just me. It's kind of a weak spot for many people. So I thought, you know, why not write about knees? I do realize, I did realize earlier on that it is not a, like a very glamorous topic. I think I wrote about the book even that, you know, if you write about, let's say the brain, people would go, you know, of course, that's a very intriguing topic, but knee just sounds like so, like, why? You know, because it's so taken for granted. But in my mind, I feel like that just makes it all the more fun and interesting. Um, I want to make it, I want people to realize it is not a boring topic. It's not something that we should take um, take for granted. Um so yeah, so that's um, that's how that came about. Yeah, wow, um, that is interesting. And I, I know that, um, for instance, knee replacement surgery is so very common. And so, although it, you say people may perceive it as a boring topic, and yet it's probably something that people have on their minds a lot. Um, yeah. So okay, let's kind of begin with some basics, although I have to say I didn't know about any of this stuff, but would you give us a brief primer on adaptations the human body made to become bipedal and the knee's role in bipedalism? Sure. Um, so that's something I wrote about in one chapter of, chapter of the book that focused primarily on the evolution of the human knee. So bipedalism, uh, for, for readers or listeners who may not be familiar with, um, it simply means uh, moving habitually on two feet, right? By, you know, that means two, um, which um, if when you come to think of it, it's really a key feature of being human because no other mammals move bipedally. They move on four feet. Um, so to stand about, to stand up and move about on two feet uh, is really a, a, a hallmark feature of being human. And in order to do that, the knee has seen um, important um, adaptations. These adaptations are, you know, a complex, of course, and um, and they're different and or subtly different in different ancient um, hominy populations in different um, branches of ancient human populations. Um, but as far as uh, contemporary modern humans are concerned, uh, one of the key changes is the angulation. We don't think of it as we don't think our legs as being angled. But um, let's say if we compare our uh, lower our legs with apes, in apes, the thigh bone and the shin bone form more like a straight line. So imagine you draw imaginary lines through their two legs. The lines will not meet, right? They're like parallel. But in us, the thigh bone and shin bone, they connect it at an angle through the knee. So if you draw imaginary lines through your two sides, the lines will eventually meet. Granted, they will meet 
underneath you deep, deep in the ground because the angle is not like huge. But there is an angle there, which is important because that's what allows us to um, put each foot directly below our body. Um, And this is important for bipedal walk because, you know, during that walk, and momentarily you're balancing on one foot. So if you're, excuse me, so if you can put each foot directly below your, you know, center of gravity, below your body, that allows you to momentarily balance on it. Uh, So that's one key um, adaptation that has happened. Another, and there are more, but another thing that I um, I can really briefly mention is um, the the um, at the lower end of our femur or the thigh bone, there are two kind of knobs, the round knobs, like they're called condyles, and each thigh bone has two of them, and they kind of roll onto the top of the shin bone, the tibia, uh, you know, the the tibia, where it's more or less flat. So they roll on it when you bend your knees. Uh, That's how the knee more or less functions. Um, In humans, these condyles are actually oval in shape. So like a horizontal oval. Whereas in apes, they're, they're circular. Now, as you can imagine, if it's an oval shape, that means there's more or like a larger contact area for the condyle to roll on the top of the the tibia. So with a larger contact area, uh, there's less stress. And because when we move bipedally, when we stand up, there's tremendous amount of stress on the knee. So a larger condyle helps to take a bit of that stress away. So those are a couple of examples that um, of the adaptations that has happened to um, to the human knee. Okay, so let's um, stick with anatomy for a while. And in chapter two, which is called Confused Anatomy, you explained that knee anatomy is not straightforward on many levels. Why are some types of knee pain so hard to fix? And maybe you could focus on one bit of anatomy or one type of pain, because there are several. Right, right. Um, so once again, you know, the... the um, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is complex because depending on each individuals and their particular knee pain and their knee trouble, um, it's difficult to say what exactly is making it, you know, hard to diagnose or hard to fix. But generally speaking, um, the it's also because or partly because um, the knee anatomy is complex. So once again, like I said earlier, I think we often take the knee for granted and thinking it's just a simple joint, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not really simple. There's so many structures going on in the small area of the human body. So take, for example, the, the back, the back outside of your knee. So like take a moment to imagine that or feel that area. It's such a little area, but it's nicknamed the dark side of the knee because there are many structures that crowd this area. Um, at least three tendons, nine ligaments, and they lie on top of each other or below each other, or they, you know, they're crossed, they cross from each other, which make it really difficult to pinpoint specific locations of pain. Um, 
And aside from the inherent complexity of the knee anatomy, each person tends to not have the same exact knee anatomy, um, which makes it even more difficult um, to diagnose specific causes of pain or to fix the specific pain. Um, one particular example I talked about qu- quite a bit about in the book is the ACL, which I think it's um, it's something many people probably have heard of. It's a commonly injured knee ligament um, because it is a major ligament, and so it takes a lot of stress um, in you know everyday activity and especially in sports. Um, and certainly, you know, there we have ACL reconst- reconstructive surgery. Uh, if you tore your ACL, you can always have surgery. Um, but it is well known that despite of reconstructive surgery, a considerable number of patients still have issues. Now, once again, the specific reasons for this may differ for individual patients. So I'm not, you know, saying that's all because of anatomy. But but generally speaking, or at least a part of the reason is we just we currently still lack a very thorough understanding of the ligament. Um, for example, some people see the ACL, you know, as a ligament, it consists, it's just one single bundle of fiber. Uh, you know, it's, it's there to stabilize the knee. But others believe it consists of two separate bundles of fibers, and they work separately during movement and have different movement and different functions. And still others um, believe it, it, you know, it consists consists of anywhere between six to 10 bundles. So at some point, if it stops being just a pure academic, you know, conversation, it becomes, well, like, if we don't know the exact anatomy and functions of the ACL fibers, how can we hope to truly reconstruct it and restore the need to its full function? Um, and it's it's even more complex than that because, you know, ACL gets talked a lot about um, because it's a major ligament, but there are other ligaments, there are minor, you know, I guess so-called minor ligaments in the knee and, and one or more may well assist with ACL in providing knee stability. And sometimes when we have, when we get into serious injuries, it's not just the ACL that is torn, even though that's often what we talk about, but other, these other minor ligaments may also be damaged. Um, currently, we don't really have consensus on whether to reconstruct these other ligaments or not, or what kind of functionality they provide. Um so that's why, because of all these individual differences, these complexities in injuries and anatomy to start with, um, partly at least, that's why knee pain can be so difficult to deal with. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting about the uh, the ACL, because you would think there are so many knee surgeries and there would be a lot of uh, of viewing plus, I suppose, the autopsies that doctors do in medical school and surgeons, but you would think they would see so many of these that it would be absolutely clear what the anatomy is. So that's really interesting that it's um, it's not. Right. Um, it's Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, that's something I also feel like you would think. It is one of the... If I remember correctly, it's one of the elements of the body that's the most, that's 
the most, if not the part that's the most injured. And you would think with all the modern, you know, medicine technologies, imaging technologies, autopsy, you would. Um, but I, as I mentioned in the book, autopsies can have various, you know, complications if the tissue is frozen or it may not work exactly like, you know, how it functions in live human bodies. Even imaging technologies that, like MRI, um, the resolution pales in comparison when we look at the um, intricate um, details of the human body. So, yeah, so I mean, we are definitely, we're definitely doing a a lot of research on it when you get into it, especially with ACL, so much research on it. But that's just, I guess, the reality of science and medical science. It's it's always an, an, an ongoing process. Um, and especially with, and I think that's the other thing I often want to convey in, in my book on popular science or in my other kinds of research on science, is that it's never black and white as people may think. It's so interesting when you look at the anatomy, um, autopsy, your findings. People have different interpretations of what they're looking at when they dissect, like, let's say, a, a frozen, you know, piece of tissue. Often is it becomes a, a how do you dissect it will, will, you know, change the result of what you are looking at. And how you interpret what you're looking at also changes what you um you know, the, the result of the findings. So it's never black and white, and that's why um, it can really get complex, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, gu- I guess it's good to know we don't know everything yet. Um, so moving on to a sort of different area, you've woven in through the book considerations of how the knee reflects social attitudes at times in history, particularly as it relates to women. And did you have a sense before you began your research that the knee could be a vehicle for or a driver of feminist concerns? Um, that's such an uh, interesting, uh, that's such a fun question that I'm so glad you asked. Um, I I had an, uh, some, some ideas, but um, honestly, not as much as I thought it would turn out. I mean, I started the book knowing that I I want to talk about fashion in some manner, especially the hemline, because, you know, as a woman, I'm aware based on just readings, feminist readings that I've come across in my academic career, um, you know, based on news and personal experiences, to be honest, how much women are subject to social policing when it comes to their bodies and what they reveal, how they dress, how they not dress, um, so much more policing uh, than the men. Um, And I'm aware how sexual assault, for example, is sometimes blamed on women for how they dress. And I was brought up in a very conservative culture, so I'm very keenly aware. And to this day, I think it changes the way I think the way think about the way I dress. I'm keenly aware of how people, some people may perceive, uh, you know, short dresses or short skirts that goes, you know, that go above the knee. Like the knee is like the key. <laughs> that the key area, depending, you know, regarding is this an okay dress or is this too short. Um, 
So I thought it would be really neat if I could kind of, you know, somehow write all of this into the book about the knee. So I kind of started with the hemline. Um, and then, you know, as I researched more and more, I just find it so fascinating um, how it's an in, in, inherent part of, you know, women's rights, women's um, way of living. Um, and it was honestly so fun. I learned a lot of interesting things I did not know about dress reform. Uh and, and and I appreciated how it relates in very many fundamental ways to women's rights. Um, you know, I talked about flappers because um, you know they are um, one of the the key groups, or at least what many people know about, that started to wear short dresses in you know in um, recent history. So I kind of started there, and I kind of looked backwards to uh, you know. Early um, before them, um, the uh, the more of a traditional, really really long gowns and dresses, and I kind of um, like wove like them wove into uh, them the you know women's rights and 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 all of that, and I just gained a a better perspective on contemporary women's continuous struggle with their bodies and with fashion, like the miniskirts um, and all of that. Um, you know, I don't know if that sort of answered your question. Yeah, yeah, no, it was just really, it was a, you know, a different take on the knee. But what you say is so true about above, it was above the knee or below the knee, the hemline is, is so critical to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just kind of sticking with female concerns for the moment, women's soccer, another topic dear to my heart, or football as we call it here in the UK, um, it's become a big thing in the UK where I live. And recently, there's been debate about the high prevalence of ACL injuries that you were just talking about in female soccer players as opposed to men's. It's a much higher rate among the women. Um, and from, from your book, I gather that we have no conclusive answer yet to why that is. But what are some likely theories? Um, right. So that is correct. And it's, um, and it's not just soccer, unfortunately. Um, if you read studies, um, uh, studies from a variety of sports and play levels too, right, from like middle school all the way to pro, um, show that women are far more likely to suffer knee injuries and, and have knee surgeries too than men who play the same sports. So, so there's definitely something going on there, but we just don't exactly know why this is so. But there are generally speaking of three main theories that I talked about in the book. Um, the first one is anatomy, going back to what we said earlier. Um, so I had mentioned that individuals' knee anatomies may or may not be exactly the same, um, but also um, women's knee anatomies um, can be different than men's, um, generally speaking, again. So according to this theory, the idea is women's knee is kind of an evolutionary compromise. Uh, it's compro compromised because it has to ensure human reproductive success, right? As a species, in order for us to succeed and survive, we have to reproduce. And um, women because of their role in human reproduction has had changed has their needs have picked up or you know experienced adaptations that may or may not make it um, a strong a strong link in their body so for example 
um, because of their childbirth duties, women have a wider, in generally speaking, a wider pelvis than men, right? Because you need a wider pelvis to have a wider, a wider, sorry, a wider pelvis to have a wider um, pelvic canal. So, you know, babies can come out. And especially um, our, you know, ancient as ancestors, as they become larger brained, um, they they need a larger, you know, opening, a pass. So, so that helps with our reproductive success. But a wider pelvis may not be well suited, some people believe, for bipedal walking and running. Um, because with a wider pelvis, your quad muscles will have a stronger sideway pull on your knee, right? Um, and this can interfere with the smooth movement of your kneecap. Uh, it may cause excessive rotation of the lower leg and then thereby endanger uh, the proper function of the knee. And there are other anatomical differences that people have theorized between women's knee and men's knees, but that's one example. Um, so that's the first theory is it, it blames on anatomy. Um, another theory, a second theory kind of faults uh, the female hormones and, and think they are the cause of uh, the weaker knees in, uh, in women. Um, so for example, um, the human ACL, oddly enough, um, contains estrogen receptors. So as some people would know, receptors are protein molecules that respond to different um, stimuli and initiate um, specific cellular responses. So estrogen receptors, as the name would suggest, respond to estrogen. So as you can imagine, these receptors exist in female reproductive organs, like the uterus, like the ovaries. But interesting enough, estrogen receptors are also found in the human ACL. So it is suspected that the estrogen will weaken the ACL by reducing um, the production of collagen, which is the main protein in ACL. And more specifically, studies found that it could, um, estrogen exposure could reduce uh, the production of type 1 collagen, uh, which is the type of collagen that provides uh, mechanical strength to ACL. Um, and there are other hormones that are being blamed depending on different studies. Um, but that's the, the, the second main theory is to focus on the female hormones. And the last one um, believes that women have um, weaker knees or more, are more prone to get injured because they have weaker uh, neuromuscular control. So for folks who um, may not already be familiar, uh, neuromuscular control simply refers to our ability to rapidly activate our muscles to gain dynamic stability. Um, and it's, you know, vital in, in sports or really in everyday living. Like, you know, if you're about to fall for some reason, if you can quickly react, like maybe stiffen up your leg muscles, you take a few stumbling steps and you can stay, you know, upright rather than fall. Um, so that's all neuromuscular control. 
to have this good control, you must first be able to collect sensory information quickly and accurately, like you know the position of your knee, the angle it's currently in, the amount of tension in the surrounding muscles, all of that, quickly and accurately before you can then make、um, an effective movement. And, and this ability to collect sensory information, as some people would know, is called proprioception, or some people call it the sixth sense. The sixth sense.、Um, Women, some、um, some studies、um, show, may have a may have poorer proprioception than men.、Um, so a typical study, for example, would have、uh, male and female participants、um, seated in this testing device that would either straighten or bend their knees. The participants would be blindfolded. They will, you know, wear a headset and have their feet in, you know, air cast boots. So to deprive them of any other sensory input, so they cannot see, they cannot, you know, otherwise feel their leg, you know, knees moving.、Um, the the testing device would then ever so slowly, without warning, move their knees, move their knees a bit. So how quickly you can sense your knee being moved is an indication of your proprioception. So studies would show that men and women.、Um, Uh, were you know fairly similar effective at detecting their knees being bent, but women would take much longer to detect their knees being straightened past fifteen degrees, and at this past this angle is where you would have increasing stretching of your ACL. So the lesser ability to detect this movement, people believe, may contribute. To higher risk for ACL injury in women. So,、um, so there are more examples that I talked about in the book for each theory. But then again, it's very important to note, as I mentioned earlier, that there is no consensus、um, on the exact reason.、Um, but if you ask me, I would much prefer the third theory. You know, the the third theory because there is nothing. Really, or very little that we can do as women, we can do about our anatomy or hormones.、Um, neuromuscular control, on the other hand, may be trained, as some studies show, and there is evidence that effective training, like how to jump correctly, can reduce、um, female athletes' knee injuries. So you can get better at your neuromuscular control and maybe get a better handle on your knee health. So that's something we, as women, could do anyway.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, very interesting.、Um, so, kind of changing topics here. You devote an entire chapter to the unexplored, fascinating topic of kneeling, and it contains, to me, what seems a core passage of the book, which begins. Is any of this relevant in a book that's supposed to be about the human knee? And you answer yourself: It is what we do with our bodies that matters. If walking upright with two bipedal knees makes us human, then bending or not bending those knees complicates the meaning of humanity. If it matters how we use our knees to play sports, then it matters even more how we use those knees to function in societies. Um, fascinating stuff to think about. 
Would you give us one example of how we've used our knees meaningfully in society? Sure. And again, I'm so glad you asked this question because I would suspect some people, and I ask those, and I ask that rhetorical question and answer myself in the book because I anticipate some people would say, "Well, you know, this is not really relevant." But as an author, as a researcher, and teacher of science communication, I really do think it matters.、Um, you know, because it's not. It's what we do with our bodies. I I really believe that 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 matters,、um, and so one example、um, that I talk quite a bit about in the book is the、um, the black and and then later white athletes' protest against、um, police violence and racial oppression in the United States. So.、Um, Or as you know, some people would know, it's the Take a Knee movement or the larger Black Lives Matter、uh, movement. So, the the Take a Knee movement,、um, as many in in the U.S. at least would would know,、um, it started when one、um, NFL players.、Um, Colin、uh, Kaepernick、um, bent his knees at a football game、um, during the national anthem to protest against、uh, police violence. Toward、um, unarmed、um, black people. So when that happened,、um, there was a lot of outcry and controversy around it. People, some people,、uh, including the then U.S. President Donald Trump, were just so mad about it and、uh, were vehemently against it and said it was, you know, bending your knee during the anthem. That's a disrespect to the country. Uh, to the service men and women、uh, who fought for freedom,、um, and that's just unpatriotic.、Um, at the time, I, you know, I wasn't doing research for this book. I was just genuinely puzzled.、Um, as I mentioned in the book too, I did not grow up in the U.S. I grew up in China, and、uh, kneeling as a ritual has a has a long, deep, and complicated history in ancient China. Um, it didn't necessarily start so. <clears throat> excuse me, but in ancient China, it became this very submissive, even subservient gesture,、uh, which is why contemporary Chinese are very eager to get rid of that ritual.、Um, so I was genuinely puzzled why such a gesture, which to me just speaks nothing but submission, could be construed as you know being disrespectful or even. Unpatriotic, like why? How it? How does that come in? So I, in the book, I kind of traced my efforts to try to find answers. So I talk about、um, the kneeling ritual in ancient China and the cultural psyche behind it. I talked about the quote-unquote science-based reasons why some Americans were against athletes taking a knee, and I kind of not believe that. There are science-based reasons. So as I, you know, it's like what we do with our bodies that matters, right? It's not just the anatomy or the 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 hormones, the brain reactions that make us mad about, you know, athletes taking a knee.、Um, so I looked for alternatives, and I, you know, what I believe better、uh, answers. So I talk about.、Um, You know the murder of George Floyd, a black man who ironically died under a former police officer's knee. I talked about this need to be for Americans to be exceptional. I talked about、um, this idea that、um, 
bending our knees or not refusing to bend those knees is ultimately about or intertwined at least with national pride, with cultural baggages. And I think in contemporary America and probably the world at large, really, it has something to do with what many people find deeply, deeply uncomfortable to talk about, and that is race. So, so it just to avoid talking about things we're not, you know, comfortable talking about. We um, we focus, we hyper focused on the knee and the kneeling, and uh, and I think that's just such a fascinating example that. Um, as I mentioned, it's, you know, we need to think about how we use those needs to function in societies. Yeah, that is so interesting. And, you know, a funny thing here is that in the UK, um, at some of the big football soccer matches, they also, all the players, both teams will take a knee before the game starts. But the funny thing is, they don't play the national anthem then. So the, the motion of going down on the knee has nothing to do with not standing during the national anthem. Right. Yeah. It's, it's come to mean something unto itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, so now in, in chapter seven, which is called treatment or placebo, it delves into various therapies people use to deal with knee pain. And, you know, as the title suggests, you're looking at, well, what's the actual usefulness of some of these therapies? So as a sufferer of knee pain yourself, what did you find during your investigation that surprised you or made you rethink any strategies? Sure. Um, So in that chapter, I talked about things like, you know, um, icing or heat therapy and braces and their knee braces, many things um, honestly surprised me um, just because, you know, uh, with how prevalent these uh, therapies are, you would think there are tons and tons of literature about it, um, but um, not really. So if I have to pick, um, one thing I would say is probably the use of the of knee braces. Um, there's, there are many, so many braces, you know, on the market that you can buy. And you, and your doctors would uh, would prescribe them too. I've been prescribed very expensive knee braces, and all of them um, are you know supposed to prevent or minimize knee injuries or you know help with stabilities and all that. And I you know like I said, I personally own multiple different braces, um, and given their prevalence, you would think there you know there are tons of medical evidence for their efficacy, um, and I was surprised to find that. That's not the case. Um, um, so there are, of course, many different types of braces out there. Uh, so for example, one type is called functional braces. And these are braces that are designed to provide uh, joint stability and protect a knee that has been uh, previously injured. Um, so functional braces can be um, further differentiated depending on which ligament they are designed to support. Um, most of them, however, uh, want to target the ACL, uh, you know, just because of how often that ligament is injured and they're worn after, uh, and like an ACL injury or reconstructive surgery. Um, so anyways, multiple studies show that functional braces can limit the front and back shift of the thigh bone and shin bone. 
So essentially, then, that takes stress away from the ACL. So theoretically, it should protect ACL. But the catch is this benefit only exists when a small amount of force is put on the knee. During our daily activity, activities, let alone, you know, any sports activity, rigorous exercising, the knee is under much, much larger stress. In other words, it's uncertain that a brace can withhold that kind of stress and actually protect the knee. And indeed, when we put functional braces uh, to the test in real life, the effect they, sh- they, sh- they showed in the testing lab would diminish. Um, in multiple studies, um, if you have patients who have deficient ACL, uh, wear or not wear a functional brace and compare their performance, people wearing the brace, you know, perform no better um, in terms of, for example, the distance they can hop on their bad knee or their ability to sprint or like say run a figure eight course. Um, so it's studies, it's studies like that, like those that make me wonder, maybe sometimes I am um, using the braces just as something for my, you know, peace of mind. And that's really not doing much, if anything, for for the knee itself. Mm. So more placebo then. Yeah, I don't know if it's all placebo. I guess there are different studies that say maybe certain certain braces will enhance your proprioception, as we talked about earlier. Mm. And if you have better proprioception, maybe you just have better control of your knee. It's just the findings are far more um, all over the place as you as you would have imagined just by looking at how often people wear them, how often they are being marketed and advertised. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you about just one more thing? You mentioned ice. What about icing? Um, icing is also something very commonly used. And I used to ice so, so much um, just because, you know, that's the first thing people reach when they have any sort of an injury. Um, and and, and it, icing, if nothing, does numb the pain. Uh, and we know that. But there's also, there are also studies out there now that start to rethink um, one thing that icing would help is, you know, reduce inflammation. But there are now theories that believe um, inflammations, inflammation is not all bad. The body needs proper inflammation to heal. So, so that's the flip side of icing. Really, should we ice it or should we, you know, leave, leave the, you know, leave the body alone for it to heal? Um, so... So now, I, I mean, I still ice. I do think there is merit to it, but I'm not like icing it. You know, some people would exercise and ice right away, regardless of pain and thinking they are helping their body to rejuvenate, uh, to recover. But that's not necessarily the case, as some studies have found, um, it does not necessarily help you build muscle strength, for example. So there's a lot of, un, 
there, there, there are more controversies than you think uh, regarding these common therapies. Yeah, good, good to know. Good to know uh, where you need to question the common wisdom, maybe, mm-hmm. when treating a knee injury. Um, yeah, so at the end of the book, in the section called Last Words, you write about how one peer reviewer didn't get what you were trying to do with this book. And your aim, you say, was not to educate, which is what the peer reviewer thought you ought to be doing. What was your aim in writing about the knee and why? Um, right. So, yeah. So, like I said, one, so, you know, the Columbia would send the, the, the proposal out to multiple uh, people to, to review. And one person was just not, um, I guess, um, this is a not, they, they want a different book being written, I guess that's the answer. They just, they, they don't want, they don't think this is the right book to be written about the knee. And and I suspect um, some readers out there, if they care to pick up this book, may think the same way. Um, and then there's nothing I can do about that, right? I mean, uh, as in academia, I mean, we're also, I'm also often asked to review, you know, proposals and articles and such. And I'm always trying to review something for what the author has written rather than what I would like to be written. I don't think that's a fair um, review. But anyways, so the the reviewer doesn't feel like I'm educating readers properly on like the anatomies of the knee, the, the, the quote-unquote science of the knee. But really, when I went back and look at my, you know, proposal, the word educate or education didn't even appear once. And I'm glad it didn't appear because fundamentally, that wasn't my aim. Um, But let me first explain a bit what I mean by education or educate. I mean, I'm not against education by all means. I mean, I make a living by teaching. I'm a college professor. So it's my profession to educate in the classroom. But my research in popular science communication has long convinced me that making education a key aim in popular science is problematic um, and really, as I will talk a little later, unrealistic. So to start, when we say educate, we will immediately think of like an authority figure, an expert, right? Because only an expert gets to educate people. So what makes someone an expert in science? Well, you know, people would say, well, if you have a PhD in biology or maybe chemistry, um, you have an MD and you get to operate on people. For sure, these are experts, but that is also a very narrow interpretation of experts when it comes to science because it devalues and ignores what everybody, everyday people know about science. So for example, you know, farmers and ranchers, they know a lot about plants, crops, animals, especially when it concerns their, you know, local environment. And there are studies showing that ignoring their knowledge when you're trying to do quote unquote science about farming and, you know, and cattles can be problematic. Uh, when it comes to the knee, for example, um, 
since I started writing the book, and actually I would get random uh, email now that the book is out there, people would write me and say, oh, I got, you know, double knee replacement um, surgeries. I thought I knew so much about the knee, but I'm, you know, learning even more reading the book. So like I said, there are a lot of everyday people, the the quote unquote non-scientists who have a lot of knowledge about, you know, a a given subject. Um, Or even, you know, going back to what we talked about regarding women's rights back in the days, or really, even today, women don't necessarily get the same opportunity for science education as men do. And they may have tremendous knowledge by, you know, through practice. Um, in my earlier book on Alzheimer's, I talked about uh, this lady, Abby Lathrop, which I didn't know before, before I doing the book, who made a huge contribution to breeding rice, um, breeding mice, sorry, mice for scientific research is through her breeding that we have, you know, the lab mice, you know, and now, you know, genetic modified mice for all kinds of science research, but they are forgotten in science, you know, histories of science. So, so, you know, to go back to what we talked about earlier, in short, if we very narrowly focus on education, formal education, proper education, however you say it in popular science, and believe consciously or otherwise that only professionally trained scientists who have a diploma get to write about popular science, then we're making science more elitist than it really, than it already is. And I think that's one of the things that the reviewer doesn't like is that I do not have, you know, a PhD in say biology, then, and I, I guess, dare to write about the human body. Um, but I really don't think, I mean, great if you are a biologist and you, are a, you want to write about, you know, popular science, great. But that doesn't mean that other people cannot make meaningful contribution to the topic, as I hope this, you know, book shows that that we can. Um, and the, and the other thing is, I know many professionally trained scientists, and many of them, of course, you know, know a lot about a very specific topic. But that is the thing, though; they know very, they know a lot about a very specific topic like a particular enzyme, for example. Um, but will everyday people be interested in learning the ins and outs of this enzyme, like the detailed research methods concerning how you're experimenting on it and everything? Maybe, but often maybe not. And that's the other thing that I mentioned earlier. It can be unrealistic if we try to make education the key aim in popular science. Because the reality is popular science communication has to compete with so many other entertainment venues these days for public attention. You know, the TV, the internet, your phone, movies, whatnot. If something is not interesting, the reality is many people will not read it. So we cannot just expect that, okay, we can present a bunch of facts and that expect people will find them joyful or delightful to read. Um, And I mean, in fact, too, you know, recent, uh, not so recent uh, events have told us that just giving people facts is not gonna change people's beliefs anyways. Um, And then the last thing I think, and I kind of, 
talked about this a little earlier already. I think if we narrowly concern ourselves with educating people about science, we will tend to cut science off from its historical and social contexts. Mm-hmm. We will tend to focus only on quote-unquote facts or data or number. But as I talked earlier about kneeling, science, especially medical science, in my belief, they cannot exist without the people. Without people, I mean, there's no need for developing science because there's no one that this cutting-edge science can serve. Uh, Not to mention that the people who are doing the science, the the scientists, they also have various personal interests. Uh, you know, they're not pursuing science in um, in a 100% black and white way, right? They're humans just like we do. So that's why what they study is always situated in historical and social contexts. If we're less obsessed about educating people, we may get to explore all these wonderful side doors related to And sometimes I believe essential to understanding science, the history, you know, the societies, our values, different cultures, sports, pain, personal suffering, all of that. Um, So, you know, so rather than educating, what I try to do in this book, I guess, is to just make people intrigued and curious and interested about a topic that I personally find very interesting and curious and intriguing. I want people to go, oh, that's, you know, that's interesting, just like I did when I was researching the book. And if they already know a lot about one particular aspect of the knee, I would hope that they can delight themselves in finding that there are many other things about the knee that they do not know. Um, so they can appreciate the seemingly, you know, common join that's often taken that's often taken for granted, um, and to eventually, you know, appreciate our bodies and appreciate our lives in ways that they um, they didn't know before. Great! Wow, what a lot to think about, and it's true. Uh, there's you can pick up and read one chapter in the book, and then uh, there, there's so much else in there too. Um, Han, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we go, I did want to ask what you are working on next. Um, so, so, so I I had a lot of fun writing uh, the Curious Human Knee book. So, currently, well, aside from other more academic a kind of you know research I'm doing, some edited collection I'm doing, um, as far as popular science is concerned, I'm curious about the human eye. Um, So that's what I'm researching and hoping to write now. And I imagine, I envision it to be something quite similar to the curious human knee where I, you know, integrate anatomy, medical science, history, evolution, culture, society, people um, in a very similar fashion. Um, I don't yet know exactly what's all going to go into it, um, but the goal is going to be very similar, to take people on a journey of discovery, to, you know, to find joy in learning more about another part of our, 
of our body and to appreciate it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that I can imagine there's a lot to be said about the human eye as well in, in many different ways. So yes, we'll look forward to that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I just want to remind everyone the book out now is The Curious Human Knee uh, by Han Yu, published by Columbia University Press. And there is a lot of fascinating stuff in there, whatever your level of, of knee knowledge or expertise is. Uh, and Han, thank you so much for speaking with us today, uh, speaking with me and speaking to our audience. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun talking about it.